Hello, and welcome to the Mythgard Movie Club. Uh, this week we are, or this month, I guess, I don't know why I said week. Uh, we don't do this weekly, but uh, this month we are excited to be talking about, uh, uh, obviously a favorite, I think, of, of all the panelists here, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, um, certainly uh, an October mood sort of movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of creepy and fantasy and, and sort of dark storytelling to all of that. Uh, but before we get into talking about the film itself, uh, we've got a few announcements. Um, first of all, if you're not aware already, we are in the middle of the uh, Signum Annual Fund campaign. This is where uh, each year, uh, starting on Hobbit Day, we uh, you know talk about sort of uh, the past, present, and future of Signum University and, and sort of uh, ask people to participate financially in all of those. Uh, well, the future primarily. Um, and uh, so this year we're we're uh, kind of in the middle. We've had a few things already. We we had our traditional Hobbit Day reading uh, kick off on uh, September 22nd. Um, just this past week we had uh, the State of the University address where uh, Dr. Corey Olson talked about some of his. Uh, plans and, and some of the broader uh, growth for Signum and uh, the, the the theme for this year is the next adventure. So where we're kind of headed uh, on that adventure. So if you've missed those things, um, those are out or, or should soon be out on the Signum uh, University YouTube uh, channel. Uh, and then uh, coming up this weekend, uh, so we have Middle Moot coming up uh, just in two short days, like more like a day and a half because we're already almost done with Thursday here. Um, and uh, as part of that, I know, I'm pretty sure that Corey will be doing some uh, special broadcasts like he did from New England Mood a couple of weeks ago. So uh, th there'll be sort of a campaign focused uh, version of that. Last year they did um, the reenactment um, of Weathertop. Uh, and so this year, I, I don't know if it's gonna be another reenactment. I would be surprised if it's not another reenactment, but uh, uh, they'll be doing something there. And then, of course, we have our campaign finale coming up, uh, oh, oh, not this weekend, but uh, the following weekend, um, which has sort of been the traditional webathon. I we, We've been calling it finale. I don't know if webathon, I, I think we're getting away from that term a little bit, but uh, it, it, it'll, you know, be sort of our, our traditional end of campaign, uh, lots of uh, events and sort of focus on, on different activities. So if you, um, are looking to join any of those activities or any of our weekly activities, uh, go out to signumuniversity.org slash fund and, and see what else is coming up. Uh, and again, you should be able to see all of the details of the campaign fund there, including the donor appreciation program and what's going on, uh, you know, kind of uh, in conjunction with all of that. Um, so also uh, we have just opened registration and you can thank Kat for this because she's kind of the one behind the scenes making sure all of this gets done uh, along with all of our faculty, of course, and, and uh, our staff who help keep track of all the registration details. Um, Signum University Spring 2020 courses. We have one new course coming up this year, the Classical Myths and Legends, um, looking at uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and, and uh, some of the other tales, Metamorphoses uh, is in there. Um, Lots of great stuff, uh, kind of continuing to expand uh, the definition of mythology and speculative fiction um, through uh, some of these classical tales, which of course have so much influence on, on many of the 
uh, tales that we're reading uh, and, and even looking at, there's probably some of those influences even in Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, definitely some of the, <laughs> Pan uh, might be a clue uh, to some of those stories as well. So um, that should be a really cool class. Uh, and then uh, we're, re, uh, you know, re, um, <clears throat> excuse me, re, uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? We're, we're once again looking at Lewis and Tolkien, uh, Dr. Corey Olson. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what the uh, what the verb there was that I was trying to stretch for, uh, but we're we're looking at uh, the comparison between Lewis and Tolkien. I took that class uh, back when it was first offered. Oh, geez, uh, 2012. I just realized seven years ago. Wow. Uh, I know it's been. I know he's actually redone the course uh, once since then, and. and uh, now we're reoffering it, uh, comparing, you know, the way that these uh, two very good friends kind of approach storytelling and, and looking at the different ways that they um, interacted with each other and, and, and improved each other's uh, storytelling. Uh, Modern Fantasy 2, um, which is a, a whole different set. So right now, uh, in the in the fall 2019 semester, they're, they're looking at Modern Fantasy 1. It's not a prerequisite. If you haven't taken Modern Fantasy One, you can take Modern Fantasy Two. It's a completely different set of books, uh, but of course, uh, it, it is Corey going through. So, you know, modern, uh, of course, is is a loose term. I, I think it still goes back forty or fifty years, perhaps. Um, but you know, uh, modern in the Tolkienian sense of you know anything uh, within the last half century or so. Twentieth um, yeah, century. Uh, 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 intro to Germanic Philology 2, uh, which is following up, of course, on Intro to Germanic Philology 1. I believe that one uh, does require you to take the first one uh, in order to take the second one, but uh, that that's a great follow-on class, too, for that. So uh, registration is open. Uh, classes start in January, but feel free to register now. It's always a good idea to get, uh, as Sparrow, our... our uh, sorting hat, uh, as she likes to call herself, uh, would tell you, um, it's always good to get in sooner rather than later. So you can sort of get the pick of, uh, you know, when you want your preceptor sessions. Um, so that's what's happening in the Signum world right now. Coming up on Movie Club, though. Yeah, um, so in November, we're gonna tackle The Fifth Element, which um, is a fun movie that um, I think is a feel-good favorite of both mine and Curtis's. Um, so looking forward to kind of diving in and um, finding some interesting things to say about that. And December um, is one that I don't think either of us have a lot of experience with, which is um, Solaris, um, sp specifically the uh, Soviet um, version from the 1970s. Um, directed by Tarkovsky, as opposed to there was a more recent, I think 1990s, um, Steven Soderbergh remake. Um, but we're not gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about the difficult, um, obscure Russian version. Um, and so invite everybody to, uh, you know, check that out. Um, maybe ch try to track down the book too. There's some interesting, I'll post some interesting things about um, the translation, there's actually a, a pretty obscure, there's only one Polish to English translation and it's mm -hmm. um, not very widely available. It is available 
on Audible and as an ebook, um, but has run into some copyright issues for print publication. Um, so if, yeah. if you go searching out a novel version of Solaris, um, be a little wary of what version you get. A lot of the print versions are um, translated from a French translation of the Polish. So it's this interesting kind of issue of translation and copyright. So um, just interesting. be aware I, of that. And, and I'm kind of looking forward to digging into some of those aspects as well. I uh, I was not aware of that. I was I was actually going to brag that I had just picked up a copy, but now I'm I'm skeptical as to which uh, which version that is. So I'll have to uh, double check yeah. that. Yeah. So we'll um I there's some articles. There's some easy to find io9 articles out there about this that I um bumped into when I was looking this up. So we'll share that pretty widely on social media and on the website so that people can choose the version that is right for them. Um and yeah. So then after, I guess we'll go on to introducing ourselves. Um, and um, and just a reminder for uh, all of our, I see lots of familiar names in the list. Um, feel free to throw some questions into the questions box while we're introducing ourselves. Let us know for Pan's Labyrinth, what, what are your questions? What do you want to make sure that we uh, talk about tonight? Um, so I'm Kat Sass. I'm one of the, um, leaders of the Mythgard Movie Club. Um, and along with Curtis, we also do Cat and Kurt's TV Review, which is a podcast that covers speculative TV shows. And I, as Curtis mentioned, am also the volunteer academic coordinator for Signum University. Um, Dom, do you wanna go ahead next? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm Dominic. Um, um, I'm a political scientist by day. Um, more uh more relevant to this adventure is that i um i write uh, about politics and speculative fiction every once in a while i am currently editing a book about dune so that might be of interest to some of you and i'm also working with a few other people about a book on um star wars tv shows the frequently the animated shows so those are a few of the projects on my plate ashley do you want to go ahead next Sure. Um, Ashley Thomas. Um, I uh, write uh, my own blog. I'm the nerdy blogger. Uh, my blog is nerdyblogging.wordpress.com. Um, I'm also a contributor to fangirlish.com, uh, where I get to write about whatever it is I'm fangirling about, but um, I've written extensively about Game of Thrones, uh, Stranger Things, and right now I am uh, doing a series on horror for Halloween, um, so you can check that out. And I'm Curtis Wyant. Um, as Kat mentioned, uh, in addition to being co-host of the Mythgard Movie Club, uh, I also am a co-host of Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Um, I am a digital marketer uh, by trade. Um, I do uh, some stuff for Signum uh, website and social media, and uh, I enjoy talking about uh, fantasy and science fiction books and movies uh, as well. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. Um, Tell us one of your stories. Uh, which one, or are there different ones? Are they all the same? Is this, uh, is, I, so I was looking through here. The, these are all uh, Guillermo del, del Toro's movies. Uh, and uh, well, I get, I'm certainly not as familiar with uh, most of his stuff actually. So I guess, um, I don't know, uh, 
Kat and, and Dom and Ashley, um, maybe if you want to kind of give your familiarity and, and kind of where Pan's Labyrinth fits in uh, for you in terms of uh, the rest of his oeuvre. Uh, for me, um, I think I've seen Hellboy <laughs> as well. <laughs> and now I'm trying to think of like what others of his films I've seen. And I don't think that I've seen any other ones. So um, I'm definitely going to be relying um, in terms of any intertextual stuff that we might talk about uh, on, on the three of you. But I'd love to hear what, what your experience with his films and sort of how this fits in. Sure. Well, I think one way to start is just by talking about who Guillermo del Toro is, and he's a um, most people probably know this by now because he he's won he's won an Oscar. Um, uh, but uh, he's a Mexican filmmaker, um, director, um, has done some producing as well. But he's particularly well known for um, for movies that are horror films um, or or kind of have monsters in them or. You know, blur the line between fantasy and the mundane world, um, and he's known for having, for you know, as you know, as a director for having very a very good eye for composition, for lighting, um, and for um, really evocative imagery in the film. Um, uh, we're talking about Pan, we're going to focus on Pan's Labyrinth tonight, but several of his earlier films were um, as, as his Pan's were Spanish language films. And um, uh, the, 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 the second vertical slice in the slide is from a film called Kronos that came out in the 90s, um, which is kind of a, about, a, about somebody finding a device that makes him immortal, but kind of imposes a, a cost on him. Um, another film that he made, uh, I think it's 2001, it's called The Devil's Backbone. Not, not, I don't see a picture of it here, but that was the start Del Toro of an unofficial trilogy of fantasy horror films set during the Spanish-American War. So Devil's Backbone was set earlier in the war than Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is set in 1944. And then the, thir the third film in this trilogy, it has not materialized yet. Um, but there is some connective tissue in some of his other works. And then he, he moved more to English language works like Crimson Peak, um, Pacific Rim, obviously, um, Shape of Water. English language works, but they still, even even Hellboy, even the big blockbuster films of him are still, just by looking at them, they're distinctive. You know, you can tell it's a Del Toro film. Um, you know, often a lot of use of color grading, the, the warmer colors for uh, fantasy. So, you know, again, just a, um, I think pretty widely recognized as one of the most unique filmmakers out there. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a few other things maybe worth pointing out um, with his recent um, or, or the, the recent win for The Shape of Water as Best Picture. Um, he's they, they call um, these three Mexican directors, uh, the three amigos um, and uh, with Alfonso Coron and um, oh, shoot, the other one, the one who did The Revenant. Now I can't think of his name. Um, but no, they, yeah, gosh, it's, it's going to come to me, but, um, I think, uh, four of the last five, um, best picture winners or something like that have been films made by these directors. So it's become a little bit of a, um, you know, n n not a joke in a, in a demeaning sense, but 
but a happy joke that they're sort of passing, you know, the Oscar between them and they're just going to start rotating. Um, so they're definitely at the forefront in terms of influences today. I mean, clearly, if in the last five years, um, they've pretty much shared the best picture winners between them, you can see that these are some of the most, uh, you know, artistically and commercially important directors that are working today. Um, and I think what Dom said is important too about the, there is a connective tissue between the films that Del Toro has made, but I wouldn't go so far as to say, um, which I don't think Dom was implying, I'm, I'm, I'm contrasting him to, to somebody maybe like Tim Burton that we talked about earlier, where mm -hmm. when you look at all his films, um, at least a large number of them, they almost feel like there's a shared universe between them, that visually they are so similar in some ways that they feel very much of a piece. Whereas um, what's jumping out to me as I look at these posters for Del Toro's movies is that, yes, fairy tale and horror are significant genres for him and are present in all of his films to one degree or another, but there's also a great interplay between other genres here. Like, you know, with Pacific Rim, you have a very kind of um, sci-fi heavy action movie, and then Kronos plays with vampire mythology. Crimson Peak is this sort of gothic romance. Um, you know, Hellboy is sort of comic book mythology. Um, Devil's Backbone plays with ghost stories. And like, so each one, even though you can see recurrent themes, recurrent imagery, um, they are quite different from movie to movie in terms of genre and the look and the feel of everything. Um, although I, I did squeeze in Kronos and The Devil's Backbone last weekend in prep for this. And what struck me was that the beginnings of those movies had resonance with Pan's Labyrinth. Um, Devil's Backbone begins with a child lying on the ground bleeding, which struck okay. me as quite significant. And Kronos, um, not quite in the first scene, but early on, there's a small little statue with an eye missing and a little girl sees it and a bug comes out of the eye. And so <laughs> it was interesting kind of right in the beginning, in the first 10 minutes of those movies, there's images that kind of prefigure Pan's Labyrinth and made me kind of sit up and go, ooh, all right. He's interestingly intertextual with himself um, and intertextual with literature too. Like he's very well read. There's a great special feature on the Criterion Blu-ray um, going, uh, taking a tour through his, um, his house, which is called Bleak House, which he has, not his house where his family lives, but his man cave, as he calls it, um, which he's filled with movie memorabilia, rare books, um, DVDs, research material, everything you can think of, floor to ceiling, there's hidden doorways behind fake, you know, bookcases. It's very um, gothic and wonderful. Um, so he's clearly very well read. Um, he's written books, like he's published The Strain, which is a vampire novel, um, which he wrote himself. And then there was also recently the publication of this novelization of Pan's Labyrinth, um, written by Cornelia Funke, but adapted from his movie. So he's he's very referential as a filmmaker, um, both to, to books, to films, to his own films. Um, so I think there's a lot of connections if you go looking for them. One other thing that's relevant for, uh, especially I think 
our audience here with uh, Signum and Misgard is that Del Toro was originally uh, slated to direct the Hobbit trilogy of films, right. and that that that, that those movies went into uh, pre-production hell, and Del Toro backed out, and Peter Jackson took over. Um, which is unfortunate. It would have been interesting to see what he uh, would have come up with. But it's also, unfortunately, Del Toro's, uh, 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 his, his, he, he frequently has issues with getting films produced. Um, mm. it, there, I think there's like a Lovecraft uh, story that he wants to adapt, and that's been stuck for over a decade or more. So um, Yeah, I think it's At the Mountains of Madness. He's been trying to get made for 10 or 15 years or something. Mm. Um, what about you guys? Curtis, had you seen this before, um, this movie? Yes. You said this was your kind of um, Del Toro I, introduction, but but yeah. but not, not just in the last month. Um, right. No, I saw this very – I don't think I saw it in the theater, but very close to maybe when it came out on – video originally um and then as i said i've also seen hellboy but i i didn't i was actually going to go look up real quick on wikipedia to see what else he had done but just eat, like all the movies that you guys have been mentioning i haven't seen anything else by him uh, mm -hmm. obviously i would have seen the hobbit if he had done that <laughs> um you know uh as as most of us did at myth moot or or one of the myth moots right um but uh you know yeah, no, I, I, I haven't seen anything else. But yeah, I saw this a long time ago and then uh, more than obviously in preparation for this, but hadn't hadn't watched it since that first viewing uh, in a while. And I don't remember when I saw Hellboy. I, it, it was not in the theater as well. It was sometime after it came out. It, you know, it, I'm certainly into, you know, the, the, the comic book films, but that wasn't one that I was running out to see in the theater. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I like what Dom said about um, the, the sort of the, the, the colors and, and the, um, like I, you definitely could get, get a sense of that, especially. Um, so there's definitely the contrast between the, the, the real, well, the, the, the real world and, and the fairy world in, in this, but also there's, there's kind of like a midway version of that uh, when you get up into like the mountains and the resistance and, and you notice kind of the different, uh, certainly some, some more, um, some more of the warmer colors when it's, when it's like, um, when, uh, oh, what's her name? Uh, 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 Mercedes. 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 Yeah. It goes up and then like, you know, first kind of sees her brother, but then there's like also the contrast of like when the, when the, the soldier that when the, um, I, I don't know what they're called in the in the film, but the uh, the, the 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 you know Vidal and his soldiers go in, and it's sort of like misty and and darker. But then, you know, there when it's just the uh, the other soldiers, there's kind of like warmer and and lighter coloring, and mm -hmm. that was something I I kind of noticed more the, my second watch through this time. Uh, so uh, yeah, that uh, you definitely can see that that he's playing uh, with those types of things. Ashley, uh, what about you though? Did what's your yeah. kind of experience um, here? So this was the first uh, Guillermo del Toro movie I ever watched. Um, 
I watched it on Halloween uh, in 2008 at my best friend's house. Um, at the time, I did not watch horror movies at all. I would gear myself to watch one a year, every year. Um, and so that was the one that we watched. <laughs> um, and she's like, no, 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 you'll, you, you'll like this one. You'll like this one because it's, 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 a, it's a dark fairy tale. I was like, all right, fine. Um, but um, I've seen several of the other Del, uh, Del Toro pictures um, represented here. Um, I need to give Pacific Rim and Crimson Peak another go just because I've only seen them once. And I don't, they didn't strike me the way that Pan's Labyrinth did. Um, I think for me, um, Pan's Labyrinth is the most like uh, The Shape of Water. Um, it opens the same way, uh, you know, where you uh, you have the, the beginning of a fairy tale about a lost princess. Um, uh, the color is very, very similar. You've got that blue-green um, color for, like, the darkness in Pan's Labyrinth, and, and that kind of pervades throughout uh, The Shape of Water as well. Um, and then uh, one, one character actor that just keeps uh, coming up in a lot of Del Toro's work is uh, Doug Jones. Uh, and of course, Doug Jones is uh, the fawn and the pale man in Pan's Labyrinth, and he is uh, the creature in The Shape of Water, which Shape of Water was my favorite movie from two, uh, 2017. So if we ever do a Mythical movie called about The Shape of Water, I will talk for a very long time about <laughs> that because I love it so much. Um, yeah, interesting Doug Jones fact. Um, he does not speak Spanish. So yeah. um, learned his learned his lines and was a trooper and performed them on set. And just for reasons of authenticity, obviously, they, they redubbed them later. But um, it's pretty impressive that he, you know, got in there and uh, and acted in a language that wasn't his own, which seems to be mm -hmm. a, a thing of Del Toro's. Um, he did the same thing to Ron Perlman in Kronos. Just cast him and and you know without him having learned Spanish and they started shooting like a week later so um he likes to challenge his actors that's for sure and and I think that's part of his literateness is his comfort I've never seen a movie like Chrono uh, struck me as um I've never seen a movie so happily switch between languages and just have it not be a big deal um so for what that's worth um that's worth checking out um, I think the next slide we have is about the frame. Um, so if anybody kind of wants to speak to that, Ashley um, mentioned this recurrent theme across his movies of this lost princess fairy tale. Um, mm -hmm. So we get uh, Ophelia here as, um, or Princess Moana um, in the beginning and the end. Um, so yeah, if there's any other aspects of that theme that somebody wants to speak to. Yeah, I think his his movies often will take fantastical uh, stories or f even fairy tales, in the case of Pan's Labyrinth, and approach them in a way that, that isn't quite gritty. It's not grimdark like Game of Thrones, but also um, is perhaps a bit more heavy-hitting in how it presents reality. Um, you know, Pan's Labyrinth has I think a surprising amount of violence and gore mm -hmm. for a fantasy movie that purports to be a fairy tale. Um, it's sometimes very unexpected, but it is also not in there for shock value. It's not in there for titillation. 
Um, Shape of Water, I would say something similar too, where there, there, there is nudity, there is violence, but it's just, it's just there. It's just part of the world. So it's, it's again, it's an interesting combination. And um, I always find that Del Toro began Pan's Labyrinth with this fairy tale set up and then ends the movie with it. And I, I know we'll get into this later, but there are a lot of questions as to questions as to um, the extent to which that, how we interpret that frame. If this frame, the, fan, the fairy tale frame is quote unquote real or literal, or if it's supposed to be, you know, like how is, 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 um, how are we supposed to, or is this, is Princess Moana real, you know, or is this just um, an inspirational story for a young girl who's in trouble? Yeah, I I definitely wanted to talk about the framing here, and also because um, there's a little bit of blending in the frame of the story. Because like we we have this the fairy tale framing, but even before this, preceding this is the um, you know the the textual that uh, you know talking about the Spanish Civil War and and you know when this takes place after that. So so there's a little bit even like of the frame itself kind of blending back and forth and you're not sure which is which is actually the frame and which is actually the story um, in that effect as well, uh, which I I didn't really think about again until the second time through. Um, your, your points about, uh, you, you never notice the uh, sort of, Violence and and I agree it's not gratuitous or anything in any way like it, it, it's realistic um, and and the and the swearing and, and the uncomfortable parts uh, unless you're watching it with your teenage daughter um, which I did the first this first time rewatching it um, and not remembering uh, you know some of the, the the frankness and things like you know sawing off someone's leg which fortunately didn't get like super gory but I wasn't sure. <laughs> Because I didn't remember uh, that first time through, like how much they were actually going to show there. And I'm like, you might want to close your eyes for this because <laughs> uh, I really don't know what's coming up. Um, so, you know, but in terms of the frame itself, I, I definitely want to talk about this. And and uh, these two shots sort of in, incidentally that I put in here uh, also go to show the, the contrast there. Kind of, I think what you were talking about before, Dom, of the, the coloring and the... Um, I, I mean, these are both kind of in the fantasy world, but it's before and after, right? Mm -hmm. um, or or after and before, if you're going from left to right, um, of, you know, sort of the underground uh, realm, which is not explained. Like we don't, uh, other than that it's underground and it's a realm, like we don't know anything about uh, this place, but kind of gives that fairy tale feel to it. And, you know, you have, I, I, I guess it's, it's, the fawn who's sort of narrating this, but um, at least in the beginning there, uh, and you know, but you don't have, there's no context for, is this real? Is it not real? Is it just one of the, the stories that's being made up? You've got um, the initial overdub again, you know, sort of blending the, the frame and the story of the, the backwards running of the blood, you know, uh, mm -hmm from uh, Ophelia as she's sort of lying there dying, but she's not dying because it's backwards. She's like undying. I like, mm -hmm. you know, so so there's kind of this whole like reversal and, and blending of the frame where you're not really sure 
what is frame and what is story and and that um which i i really i i appreciated much more on the second watch through um and and i don't i don't know if you guys have opinions or if it even matters which is the frame and which is the story um but i just kind of wanted to note that and and bring up that there is there is this feeling of a frame whether or not it actually is a frame or not Right, and that, that, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Of is it a fairy tale set within this kind of realistic historical narrative, or is the historical narrative embedded in what is a larger fairy tale narrative? Um, you know, which I guess implies that one of them has to, one of them carries more weight. Which maybe that's not true. Maybe it's a kind of more of a yin and yang situation of of. I don't know, maybe maybe where you land as, you know, we'll share the quote later of Del Toro saying, you know, mm -hmm. it's for you to decide and where you land probably says more about you than about the, the film. But um, our, our kind of need for one of them to be more true than the other is an interesting way for him to kind of set this up. Um, but I love that what you said about um, the, the the first image being a reversal of death. You know, there's in the first image of the movie, there's a foreshadowing of the ending of mm -hmm. death, you know, death coming first and turning into life rather than the other way around. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the, the violence of the world fits in both frames. I mean, on the one hand, we have a bloody brutal Spanish civil war. And on the other hand, we have a bloody brutal fairy tale, which certain fairy tales certainly can be, you know, um, when you go back to the original versions of the grim fairy tales and, and the European folk traditions that they're drawing on, um, especially before there were subsequent revisions to make them a little cleaner. Um, right. There's a lot of gore and violence and brutality in those stories. So it kind of, um, it might not feel what we know today as a kind of Disney fairy tale, um, but certainly in the roots that that Del Toro is working in, I think violence sort of fits comfortably within both of these genres. Um, I think what's incredibly smart about the film is that it sets up a lot of that tension and ambiguity early on, like really right at the beginning, as we've been saying, and that primes the audience to. To, to look at the film with both perspectives and to, um, you know, to, to, and, and, I, and I think I, I, I could imagine, I could imagine, I could imagine Pan's Labyrinth being done by a different director um, and having the whole Ophelia might be a princess thing coming as some sort of plot twist in the middle or near the end um, mm. with no, no setup, you know, oh, surprise, mm. you know, you're actually a secret princess. And we've seen that movie so many times and, it can come across as a bit forced if it if it's if it's just thrown out there uh, with no setup. But here, you know, we are we are told this might be a fairy tale. We're also told this might be a his, this might be history, um, and especially mm -hmm. as Curtis said, you know, the, the introductory text about the Spanish mm -hmm. Civil War actually has a specific date. Like, what do we know mm -hmm. about fairy tales? Yeah. You know, fairy tales are always you know a long time ago. You know, they're very vague yeah. about the date and the location. Um, and we have both in this movie. We have 1944, Spain, and then we have 
where there are no lies or pain or lived to princess, blah, 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 you know, very vague fairy tale. So I think just has, setting both up right at the beginning um, really helps this film because it, it just, it, it allows the audience to, to accept both. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think we can get into more connections and um, subversions and stuff, but Guillermo del Toro goes a lot further with it, but that's one of the ways that it reminds me most strongly of the Narnia books is um, even though he doesn't really develop that theme because pretty quickly they're through the portal into the other world, you know, that's very specific 1940s or late 30s, whatever the case is in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the sense that, okay, he doesn't, he doesn't give a date to it, but um, you're told right away that these are children evacuating London, you know, because of the Blitz. And especially in the 50s, with that being such recent memory, I think that would have been a very potent and specific thing for a lot of readers. Um, I mean, it still is today. And I, and I can't think, I don't know if you guys can think of, I can't think of a lot of other examples of that. I mean, maybe more recently, but certainly in this kind of classic fairy tale tradition that this movie's drawing from, um, it seems like Narnia is the big precedent for that of, we have a fairy tale world, but we're also setting it in a very specific time and place. Um, I haven't read Jim Butcher's novel, so my understanding is that there's some of that as well. Um, mm. Well, wait, and isn't well, isn't I guess isn't Harry Potter kind of like this? Like it is set during the '90s, it, and then there's Hogwarts, which is you know. It is, but I, I don't, maybe you guys disagree. I don't feel that the 90s are as relevant to Harry Potter as the 1940s are to this story or, or even they are to the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I mean, in some of the backstory there is, when you get to the parallels between Grindelwald and the kind of you know, World War Two and Wizarding World parallels, then the history, the dates seemed a little more relevant. But, um, but I don't know, I don't necessarily feel when I read Harry Potter that it's relevant that it's set in the 1990s. But, um, but maybe people disagree with me. Yeah, well, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I just yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with what you said, Kat, just the, um, like, I mean, I feel like with Harry Potter, like, it's not tied to the, uh, the idea of anything within the 90s, um, because he goes to Hogwarts, and that functions in a completely different manner, and so it doesn't really matter that... Uh, is uh, the conflict is as much, um, the external conflict of the war is as much part of the story as um, the mystical realm of, uh, of Pan's Labyrinth. Um, also- oh, um, Go ahead and finish, actually. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I just hearkening uh, back to uh, something we had touched on a little earlier. Um, comparing this again to The Shape of Water, like the way the story is framed with the uh, the fairy tale about the lost princess. Um, 
I feel like for whatever reason in The Shape of Water, it is easier to forget about that particular framework um, and not interpret the movie within the light of that, or it's for whatever reason, it's easier to forget about it once you, you know, get into the movie. Um, whereas Pan's Labyrinth, you, you get, you get this um, fairy tale introduction and the first scene is Ophelia riding in the car, reading a book of fairy stories. Mm. Um, so you get that imagery of, Oh, I'm, 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 she's reading a fairy tale. We're within a fairy tale realm. Um, I don't know. Somebody else want to touch that? Cause I, cause I feel like the way you interpret the shape of water, um, ultimately, um, impacts whether or not you enjoy the film. Because mm -hmm. if people just see it as kind of a literal thing, I, t I, I find that they tend to not enjoy um, the metaphor in um, um, The Shape of Water. Mm -hmm. Whereas Pan's Labyrinth, for whatever reason, maybe because it's more immersive, you're going in a labyrinth, you're going down, you're seeing all of these very, very fantastical things versus looking at um, the creature in The Shape of Water as a, he's, he's, a, um, he's a new species versus a magical creature right shape of water there's a fish guy in what is otherwise a mostly realistic world as i remember it um mm -hmm. whereas there's this boundary crossing in pan's labyrinth that there's this back and forth kind of ebb and flow throughout and i think it's in terms of forgetting the narrative like shape of water like again it's a while since i've seen it but i think you can forget the opening prologue until the end when it becomes relevant again. Um, whereas Hand Labyrinth's a quest. Like she has been told, you're this princess, but to prove it, you must complete three tasks. And so she is diligently kind of checking those off periodically. You know, every so often we get a little vignette of what's the new task, what's the challenge that she has to overcome. And I think that doesn't allow you to forget it because the thrust of the story is her kind of quest to to prove this thing or or discover the truth of this thing about herself. Yeah, and also, um, Shape of Water is part fairy tale, part science fiction. So it's a slightly, there's a bit of a right. genre the shift. Genre's a bit different. And um, the, 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 the fish person, the, the, the being in that, in, in Shape of Water, unlike the, the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth or even the pale man or the fairies, the fish person is, is objectively real. Like we know that other people see him, other people interact with him. Um, so there, there isn't quite that same question uh, that always comes up with, you know, the, the, the creatures Ophelia encounters of, you know, whether or not this is all in her head. So um, can we advance to the slide about the fawn? Because um, I came across this interesting story um, of Del Toro's from an interview. He was on Charlie Rose. So he talked about um, that when he was a kid, I have the text there, um, he would have these very lucid dreams, these sort of waking nightmares, um, specifically in his grandmother's house. and. Um, every night he stayed in that house, he would wake up like a little bit before midnight and he would wait in terror until the clock or the nearby church struck midnight. 
and from behind the armoire would come this fawn and he would freak out. Um, so that was this, this was a kind of nightmarish encounter for him. This wasn't um, a, an invitation into Narnia necessarily, but I think when we talk about fawns and wardrobes, we can't help but think of Narnia. So I'm wondering if this is another way to approach it as kind of a subversion of, of the Narnia or the Mr. Tumnus figure of, now I know Corey has talked about Mr. Tumnus being ambiguous in his own way, you know, as a fawn. You're not entirely sure when Lucy goes through the wardrobe, um, whether, what side he's on and he is compromised. Like, you know, don't forget that he is a spy and he does inform on her and he's not a purely good character. But at the same time, like, we love him and we have all these nice warm fuzzy associations that are hard to escape. Um, whereas clearly Del Toro's fawn is not warm and fuzzy in that same way. Um, but it's interesting to me that this, it struck me this contrast between being kind of invited through a wardrobe where you meet a nice fawn. We have this nightmare image of a fawn who comes out from behind the wardrobe and comes into your house. And it's sort of this horror invasion um, rather than a kind of classic portal fantasy, I don't know, scenario. Um, so it seems like that's kind of some of the things that he's playing with is, I guess what are typical fairy tale motifs and images, but maybe subverted more into a horror tradition of they're intriguing, they're not necessarily evil, but they're not necessarily benevolent either, and they're quite terrifying, at least at first. Yeah, I mean, I, it's the design of the fawn is really interesting too. So, just for those of you who might not be familiar, the middle image uh, with that, if you're looking at the slides, um, that that goat-like figure that is really hunched over, is actually an early early concept art for the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth. Um, which, by the way, the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth might not actually be Pan, which is something we might want to talk about as well. Um, it's never specific. It's never stated that that fawn is Pan, and so I don't, it's, it's, um, but um, the, the, the fawn, you know, we usually think of fawns as having goat legs and human torsos, but the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth does not. It looks more like, looks, looks like it's almost like a tree, almost tree beard like, but with goat horns. Goat yes, a goat ent. <laughs> um, which, it's supposed, I think I, I kind of take it suggesting something um, really ancient, almost almost like ossified, that this is such an old being that it is just bone. Right, and he gets at that with his sort of introduction there. I've had so many names, old names, that only the wind and the trees can pronounce. I am the mountain, the forest, and the earth. I am, I am a fawn. Um, Notice he does not say pan. Yeah. Because right. we can pronounce pan. Right. Right, well, right. Then, which I think, I think Del Toro has been explicit that that's a, a translator's decision. For the um, dumb American. Right. Typical American mistranslation. Although I think once it's there, mm -hmm. you can't escape the, again, those associations of 
wildness and ambiguity and connection with the earth and 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 pan is connected with fawns more generally as well so even if he's not literally pan um i don't know that the association is completely inappropriate well even the like the title in spanish is el labrithil del, del fano um which i minored in spanish in my I'm way out of practice, so I apologize for butchering that. But I mean, it, it doesn't even say, you know, it's not even like a labyrinth del pan, which pan right. in Spanish is bread. Um, so that's that it's not going to work out real well either. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, yeah, I, I never thought to call the fawn pan, just the fawn. Um, I, I kind of feel like this is like a Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone kind of thing versus Harry Potter mm -hmm. and the Philosopher's Stone. Um, Let me ask all of you, yeah. um, when you first saw the fawn, like, what did you, what was your reaction? Like, were you all, was it, was this, did you think this was like a, a monster or was it scary or was this, you know, this a friendly guide? I remember, I mean, because again, this was 11 years ago. I didn't like horror movies at the time. Um, I remember being both like creeped out uh, by him, but also really fascinated. And I kind of feel that way about a lot of Guillermo del Toro's monsters. I feel like all of his creatures are really interesting to look at. They're, uh, I feel like if you were to look really closely at the, like the fawn's head, like there's all these little lines and things mm -hmm. like that. You just, you just kind of want to stare and take it all in. But at the same time, it is very terrifying to do that. Um, that was kind of my like initial knee jerk reaction. Um, watching watching the film again for for movie club uh, was really was actually the only second the only the second time I watched the film and I, I there was a lot that I had forgotten but I still had that same kind of like uh, the font's still kind of creepy um, but I still really want to look at it just because I think the costume is so interesting. And there's something kind of charming about the way that Doug Jones plays him physically yeah. even you know that, very, that like, whimsical yeah his little like gestures and stuff like he is mm -hmm. there's something kind of fun I don't know in the performance but um it's a long time since the first time I saw it too but um I think suspicion would have been my prevailing um which I think persists like there's definitely even when I rewatch you're trying to look for the tells in his sort of con job of like, how is he manipulating her and which parts are true and which ones are, he's lying, but to a good purpose or which ones are he's lying, maybe not to so good a purpose. And, and you're never really quite sure with him. So that was my feeling at the, at, in the beginning. And, and I don't, even knowing the ending, I don't think that ever entirely goes away. I never feel, safe with him the way I might feel with Mr. Tumnus once he's redeemed. You know, I can kind of forget the sins of Mr. Tumnus, whereas, um, uh, yeah, the fawn is always, I think, appropriately enough, going to stay an ambiguous figure. He, he has that, you know, good but dangerous vibe, right? Like, um, yeah. Uh, I, and and the the suspicion I I think I'm with you I again I saw it a very long time ago so I don't know 
again, I can only sort of like guess at what my uh, reactions were at this point. But um, yeah, that, that questioning of like, okay, you know, he's definitely trying to get her to do this stuff. And it, at the end, there is an almost, almost like he's a servant of mm. her and, you know, Princess Moana and, and sort of the royal family there, but not entirely clear what that relationship exactly is. And, and like, yeah, like what, what does he get out of, you know, getting her to do all these things? If, if indeed the, the sort of fantasy story is, is real or, or the fairy story is real, like what is his particular role here? Is it just, you know, he's, he's a faithful servant and wants to get the princess back to her rightful place? Or is there something more, I, I almost said sinister. I don't know if sinister is quite the right word for it, but uh, self gratifying maybe, uh, you know, for him in getting her to do these various tasks. Um, and, and part of that's because of the um, sort of evasiveness uh, like when when he's pointing out like oh that's that's you and me in this stone carving and she's like oh and what about the baby and he's like well okay it's time to be moving on you know <laughs> like let's let's go to this uh next task or or whatever it is at that point um i forget precisely where that falls but uh yeah um actually karita's uh, agreeing with you about uh she says she felt the same about Pan and the Wind in the Willows uh, movie when she was a kid. Creeped out, but fascinated. Um, uh, and then Elise is saying that Pan's gestures are whimsical, but they also convey age. He moves as if he's been frozen for a while and is stretching out muscles he hasn't used. Um, yeah, which is interesting. Like, well, so what, what has he been doing all this time? One of the things you notice, though, is that... Um, I mean, so one of my first reactions to seeing uh, the fawn was, um, as you all said, ambiguous because, but I, I thought that ambiguity made a bit sense because he looked like kind of like an ant. He was this, it looked almost tree-like. He was moving slow. He looked like he was aged. And that made sense. You know, it was like, again, ants in Tolkien's world are a bit more ambiguous than I think we sometimes think of them. They're not, they're not necessarily like the good guy side. Um, they are out for nature, and I thought that's that's how I saw the fawn initially. That maybe he was just like he was on the side of nature, like he wasn't the you know for, like he wasn't on the fascist side of the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War. He was just just something else. But mm -hmm. then when you go through the movie, the fawn becomes he he's subtly different, and and when I first saw it. It seemed like he was maybe a bit more sinister, but also more energetic. His movements were quicker. He was more excited, and um, certainly when he like after after the pale man incident, when he comes back to Ophelia and says, "Oh, I'm giving you a second chance," like he seems like he really wants something. Like he's very like time's running short. And mm. then in the in the labyrinth with the baby, like he's he looks like he looks almost beaming, and. That that was seemed that kind of registered very oddly with me for this tree-like, naturalistic-looking being to be moving quicker and you know, smiling so much. 
that seemed much more that that was harder to process. And mm. actually, I I did later read that Del Toro specifically wanted the fawn to look like and to act like he was de-aging throughout the movie. So he's very old in the earlier scenes, and he's becoming younger as as the movie goes on. And I still I don't, he doesn't say specifically why. And I don't know if the, I don't know if there's a sinister reason behind that, or if there's a you know, or if it's just that as the magic, the underground underworld, or the underground realm is restored, he mm. also gets magic back. You know, so, but anyways, yeah, just it really kind of little subtle touches that I think make him a very memorable character. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, you know, even divorced from the context of the stories, there's a few different ways you could go with with a motif like that. Like he's he's gaining strength because he's being rejuvenated because maybe the closer she gets to her home and her destiny, he's being, you know, revitalized and and regaining strength and everything. But at the same time, you could think of like a vampire figure who who gains strength and vitality from, you know, a situation that he's draining. Um, Right, right. Yeah. And you're not quite sure, like you could go different ways with that. and the 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 backwards aging thing always makes me think of Merlin, um, you know, in certain traditions anyway. So there's a kind of connection with the wise, you know, advisor donor figure, you know, who uh, gives advice and you know doesn't necessarily tell the hero what to do, but um, is there to kind of set them in the right path or manipulate them, depending on how you look at it. Little this, little that. <laughs> uh, Elise says that she agrees with Dom uh, that the fawn seems to have a higher stake in Ophelia's success as the plot goes on. Right, but the the positive spin to to put on that is he's getting closer. That he knows we're we're almost there. She's almost got it. Like you know, if we take it as benevolent, if if in the end what she's you know. If he has confidence that she's going to make the right choice, um, then I could see that being, um, again, another Narnian connection of spring and vitality returning to the natural world um, out of this kind of dystopian uh, regime that they've been living under. Speaking of dystopian regimes, do you want to talk about the Spanish Civil War and the role that plays in the story. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an earlier slide. Um, so as we'd said, this, this the, the film takes place in 1944, which is actually not, is, is after the Spanish Civil War. So the, the war had ended in 1939. And this is not a conflict that gets a lot of attention in history classes in the U.S., but it's actually, it's it's pretty important and at the time uh, was um, basically an international call celebra. Um, uh, so you had um, uh, nationalists on one side, which were you know, a mix between fascist, conservatives, traditionalist um, uh, forces. And then you, on the other side, you had the Republicans, which was kind of a very loose group of communists, anarchists, um, uh, small d Democrats. Um, and it, you had this, this, this 
long period of civil war and conflict between these two sides. Um, and this, this in, in, in some way, it's probably, it's probably a bit oversimplifying to say it was a test run for World War II, but in some ways, um, it was seen as an, uh, an ideological clash. And the, 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 the Nazis and the Italian fascists intervened on the side of the nationalists in Spain. The Soviet Union intervened on the side of the Republicans. And um, you had volunteers from um, around the world going to Spain to fight for each side. You know, so it was, you know, including, including famous authors like Hemingway, George Orwell. Um, so it was, and then, and then, and then the, the, the ending is, is the nationalists win. Um, so Franco sets up a, a, a military dictatorship and not only does, do they win, the military dictatorship lasts until the mid seventies. So mm -hmm. one of the, I think one of the really interesting bits of context for the film that is not actually in the film itself is that, um, it's 1944, the film ends with these guerrillas, the partisans, uh, having a, winning a minor victory against Franco's troops. But the film doesn't then say, yeah, by the way, Franco's regime lasted for another 30 years and these guerrillas were probably all killed within a few weeks. Yeah, right. So I think knowing some of the history actually really recontextualizes the film. Mm. Well, and, and even um, it's not, uh, you know, it's not stated in those terms, but um, even is it Mercedes who says, like, you know, if you kill him, like, they'll send another one in a few weeks. Or someone says mm -hmm. that. I, I can't remember exactly who it is. You know, so, like, there is sort of that mood overhanging, but it doesn't stop them, uh, you know, from continuing to fight necessarily. Um, yeah. Uh, so the side I was originally going to, uh, I you know, uh, I threw in there too because um, again, this is sort of the blending of of the fairy tale and the and the uh, the real world. So there's there's the fairy tale of the rose that um, Ophelia tells to her mother, uh, you know, and it, it's that opening line that kind of struck me uh, again on my second watch through. All, all my insights were on the second watch through because you know the first time you just have to sort of watch it. Um, but that line of a long time ago in a gray, sad country, there was magic rose. And um, looking at some of the, the symbolism of the gray uniforms in that, which uh, was taken from the police armada, uh, which was actually an urban uh, police unit um, that was apparently very well known for its uh, sort of viciousness and willingness to put down uh, those rebellions in in the cities and and sort of uh, a, a Spanish uh, writer here saying that you know they they so were sort of tasked with total and permanent vigilance as well as repression when deemed necessary um, and they were called uh, los grises the gray ones because of their uniforms and and you can see kind of the the modeling of the uniform there. Um, with Vidal and and his troops, um, it, it's more of a bluish gray in the film, but that might just be a, a aesthetic choice. But certainly, that is an aesthetic choice. Um, that's Del Toro. Uh, it's mentioned in this book I read about the making of Pan's Labyrinth, mm -hmm. and they they knew that they knew that the color was incorrect, but they because they were going for cooler um, yeah color tones in the real world, they actually made it bluer. 
and and I mean, depending on the lighting, it can look very blue or very gray, like in different parts of the film too. So um, it, it's interesting how that can sort of change. But that that idea of the the gray sad country kind of stood out to me, and and just um, you know, why is it sad and and why is it gray? Well, you know, part of it's gray because of the uniforms, literally, and and sad because of the the sort of terror going on. And then um, I, you know, I found this uh, uh, essay. Uh, by some guy, Chris Olson. I don't know who that is, but uh, he wrote this uh, really interesting essay uh, called Fawn's Phantasms and Persistent Memory and um, talking, uh, you know, through Pan's Labyrinth a bit and, and in particular this one section talking about, um, you know, sort of Ophelia's, Ophelia's repeated attempts to kind of enter fairy throughout the film. And I mean, again, like, like, are these actual enterings of fairy, or are they just sort of her imagined, you know, uh, entrances into fairy? Like, you know, it's sort of, you can leave it up open to interpretation because she's the only one who ever experiences it. Um, but sort of as these escapes, um, sort of in the Tolkienian sense, I would say, uh, into fairy, although they're not quite, uh, you know, escapes in, in, in ways that, modern users might talk about escapes, right? Like it's still scary, it's still uh, dark and, and you know, you have pale men biting off the heads of fairies and that kind of thing. But um, in, in order to sort of deal with or, or escape from the trauma of, of the real conflict. Um, so I just thought together kind of this idea of uh, the gray sad country where there's this rose that like, everyone knows about, but no one sort of wants to try to get to because it's it's so uh, dangerous. You know, if you get one little prick by a thorn, then then you die. But, um, you know, sort of sort of high risk, high reward sort of situation there. Um, and, and using that kind of as as the metaphor for, you know, the conflict um, and, and the oppression of um, these soldiers, whether whether they're just sort of modeled after or actually intended to be the, the police armada uh, or not. Well, and it, it works on a couple different levels because, you know, the, they are doing the oppressing of other people, but also this connection of, you know, the grayness to the grayness of the uniforms. Um, I remember the this story within the story jumping out to me, um, just rewatching it um, because it, my memory serves that it, it she finishes her tale and it cuts to Vidal and her voiceover is sort of over him as he's mm. in his room working on his clocks or whatever he's you know, sharpening his razor or whatever he's doing. And the sense to me was there's some connection here between the Rose and, and Vidal, which I don't think we necessarily think of him as um, a very redeemable character, but mm. um there is this sense of like, do to kind of pull at the metaphor, like, do we all have this, you know, this kernel of goodness? There's this rose that you can cultivate. But if you, if, if, like they say, people fear pain and death. And so the rose isn't able to flourish. It's not able to bestow its gift. And he is so concerned with power and his legacy and immortality in the form of his son and and like if if not literal immortality then 
a kind of spiritual or metaphorical immortality that when that's your only focus when all you care about is assuring your own protection you kind of let this this potential in you go on you know untouched um so it it just the, the juxtaposition struck me because i think it the, you know it's easier to kind of see him as all you know he's all bad and and he's repressing the good guys but but there seems to be a suggestion that there's potential goodness um even in these terrible people that story within a story really struck me this time too but i guess i i think i interpreted a bit differently and this is partly informed by uh what we we're talking about before the context of the spanish civil war um but also some of the some quotes i'd come across with del toro and I, I guess I saw this as partly a commentary about lost causes, um, because, um, and, and I guess I saw this story with the rose as kind of, as basically a lost cause because, you know, yes, this rose might grant immortality, but like you're probably gonna die because these thorns are poisonous, and it, it might like it seemed like it would be very, 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 very difficult, if not impossible, to actually get to the rose. Um, mm. And Vidal is somebody who, I, I take him as somebody who, um, um, but there was no talk of eternal life for men fear pain more than they want immortality. I take, take I see Vidal as somebody who um, isn't gonna risk his life for that greater cause, or isn't gonna risk his life for the rose. Um, yeah, that he's he's his his window is ultimately very narrow, whereas the Republicans like Mercedes, the Doctor, even Ophelia Ophelia later later they 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 do that like they Mercedes survives, but um, the, the Doctor and certainly uh, arguably Ophelia they die for something greater than themselves, and um, in some ways they achieve a sort of immortality that they have a legacy. Not 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 immortality as in they live forever in the biological sense, but they they have a legacy that will last. Um, Orphelia's death in the mundane world means that her little brother lives and lives in the hands of the the the, uh, the Republicans and until they're wiped out a few funny. weeks later. Yeah, well. But even then, it's, 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 they're leaving a legacy. They're leaving a legacy of struggle. You know, Doctoral really glorifies the lost cause, um, is that they are going to be celebrated later in history. Whereas, you know, what does Mercedes say to uh, Vidal right before she shoots him? Your son's not going to know who you are. You're going to be forgotten. I'm going to kill you and not tell your son about you. Like, he is, he is not immortal. So um, this um, quote from the uh, Chris Olson, his essay um, about Ophelia is unable to, to escape from the trauma no matter how much she wishes she could. And this in turn is commentary on the need to shield children from trauma as a way of protecting them. Um, I'm interested in that because I don't know that I, unless I'm, maybe I'm missing context, maybe he's not making the argument, I think he is, but um, do you think this is a movie that 
I wouldn't necessarily see Guillermo del Toro as making the argument that children shouldn't be, I don't want to say exposed to trauma, shouldn't, children shouldn't be traumatized. I think we can all agree on that. But I also don't know that he's necessarily saying that they shouldn't be exposed to difficult ideas, um, certainly not in the in the space of books. You know, if we take the fairy tale as a metaphor for reading, you know, her interest in um, these kind of edgy, you know, fairy tales. I, my assumption is that this is a kind of pro fairy tale film that thinks children should be able to read things that are challenging. Um, but I don't know that I don't necessarily know that that's um, what uh, this essay is saying here. And again, I haven't read the whole thing. So maybe I'm misinterpreting his argument. Um, but I don't know. What do you guys think? And, and, and is this a I don't know, is this movie making an argument one way or the other for children being exposed to horrific themes in their in their literature, um, if not in their actual life? I think if you're exposed to that sort of thing in children's literature, um, that it's a safe way to introduce those ideas and concepts, you know, without being harmed necessarily in some way. Um, when I took children's lit in undergrad, uh, when we read Charlotte's Web um, and uh, Bridge to Terabithia, those are both books that deal with death. Um, and it makes it a, a, a safer way for children to learn how to cope with that. Um, I don't know. Watching this this film, um, I I really the the whole scene where um, she has an argument with her mother. You know, magic is not real. Uh, these stories are not real. Um, just um, it's I, I feel like it's that, it's that C.S. Lewis quote over again. Someday you'll be old enough to read fairy tales again. Um, it's that same kind of context where you know the world is very hard and gritty and ugly and dirty um and the fairy tales are offering an escape but also like a really healthy outlet to for her to work out uh, her emotions um and her thoughts and feelings um and the adults don't have that and therefore everything is bad in their world where she has this bright spot even if it's like creepy and scary sometimes uh, with the world of the the labyrinth and the fawn well, that's the irony of, of the mother's line about the world is cruel. It's not like your fairy tales. And you think, well, her fairy tales are pretty cruel. You know, <laughs> like it, it's a misunderstanding of what her, you know, her stories are like, I think. Um, yes, there is an aspect of, I, I you know, I, w I don't think we would say that fairy tales are without beauty or without wish fulfillment or escape or any of those positive things, but they're not necessarily lacking in, um, like Tolkien says, they're made up of the same stuff of earth as, you know, as the real world is. And I think that includes, you know, the, the pain and the, and the scary elements and the possibility of, of failure and loss as well. It's not, um, it's not all vulgarized all the time. There are those darker, more challenging aspects to the fairy tales too. 
Um, so Kat, just to, to your question about, um, I think it hinges on that word need. The way I read that was, was that it's the need of like parents to shield children from trauma, not that like the children themselves need it. Um, although I agree that like in, in looking at it through the way that you described it, like it, there is sort of ambiguity or, or maybe even like impulse might be a better verb there. Um, or noun um and uh but i don't like i i went back and and i just reread the paragraph that that's in it's it's not clear precisely what you're talking about but that the way that i read it was not that like not that children actually be needed but in, in the context of the paragraph um as a whole which which is about three times as long as what i quoted here uh he's talking about kind of the the futility of shielding children from trauma because they it, it happens anyways and they're exposed to it anyway and so i read that as the need of of like adults to shield children like like the need is on behalf of the shielders not of the shieldees so to speak um but it is it, it is ambiguous the way it's sort of stated here so i i don't i, I like because i agree with what you're saying like i don't think del toro is saying that children need to be shielded i think he's saying that their that trauma exists and like like they're gonna have to deal with it somehow or other or or not deal with it somehow or other. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't. I guess maybe maybe I could have found a better uh, less ambiguous quote here for that. No, it I think provides no, I a good talking point. <laughs> the ambiguity is a good uh, is a good prompt for discussion. I think. Um, well, the, I think you're um, probably right. Yeah. There's also this this theme of lost causes again, where um, you know, one way to think about this is that we cannot escape trauma. We should be shielded from trauma. We will not succeed in being shielded from trauma. Right. So, um, and I know we talk. We're going to talk. I have a slide on lost causes a bit later, so I don't want to go too far into that, but. Um, just because something is futile doesn't mean we should not try. Mm -hmm. Well, and so that's why I find this um, little parable or, or, or fairy tale interesting because, uh, well, for two things. Um, one, the, you know, there's this rose. Whether it's actually unattainable, we don't know it's merely perceived as being unattainable. And so nobody tries to attain it. So it, it's not that the rose is unattainable. It's just potentially very hard to obtain, right? Like, and and so because of that, it, it seems like nobody's going after it. Um, and not only not going after it, but like not even talk, like let's just ignore that it even exists. Um, I, I like to, when, Kat, when you were talking about it, the, uh, you know, the, the talking about the, the tales of pain and death is, is an inverse of, of that opening fairy tale in the underground realm where there are no lies or pain. It doesn't say there's no death, but there are at least no lies or pain. And so there's sort of an, an inversion of that. Um, whereas this is like, like, it's just everywhere. It, like the risk of pain and death is just all around. Uh, and, and, even trying to achieve immortality like increases, you know, the risk of pain and death. And, mm -hmm. and so that's really interesting. Um, but the other piece of it that I find interesting is that this is in the context of Ophelia telling a story to her mother to like 
take her mind off like the pain and you know fear of death either for herself or oh, her child one correction though it's actually she's telling the story to the baby and it's like it's really well well but like, like as she's telling the story the first part of the story is like going inside the mother's womb and seeing this this the fetus yeah the, the developing baby yes okay that, like I, I i that's a that's a important distinction but there's also like like her mother's right there Right, like the mother is right. the story as and, well. And, 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 and it's and, at her mother's prompting, you know. Right. All of that to say that, like, in, in the context of the mother who who's having, you know, problems with, the, you know, complications with the pregnancy, and, and um, I can't remember if this is before or after she, I, I think it's before she overhears, right, the um, Vidal saying, like, if you have to choose, choose you know the baby but yeah, um, but in either case like i mean they're you know 1940s it, it, certainly uh a lot more medical risk to pregnancy you know not not maybe as much as the previous century but you know certainly more risk than there is today um and and, and in some of these complications like you know very high uh potential mortality rate uh especially in wartime in the country where you know you don't have access to sort of modern hospitals and stuff uh you know just this idea of like telling a story where like basically everyone's choosing to die rather than trying you know to attempt immortal life um just seems uh it, it seems an interesting choice for why why would ophelia tell that story you know sort of mm -hmm. diegetically and then you know why is del toro you know choosing to have this particular fairy tale in this context. Um, I, I'm not sure I have good answers or, or even thoughts about that, but I, I just find, again, that juxtaposition to be kind of interesting. Yeah, and well, going back to the theme of parents, um, the, again, further ambiguity on the mother's position regarding stories as well because on the one hand she's pretty consistent about putting down you know oh you're filling your head with this garbage oh you're too old for this oh you gotta grow up blah 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 but also like you're saying um whether it's for herself or the baby or both there's also a a, a compulsive request there tell him one of your stories maybe that'll calm him down like there is whether or not she realizes it or appreciates it there's some sort of a calming effect, um, or at least she believes there might be in hearing Ophelia tell one of her stories. So even from the mother, there's kind of mixed signals on where the adults stand or where they should stand. Oh, your sound might have cut out for a second. Sorry. I was going to say, uh, uh, Dom, did you want to talk about, um, I'm not sure, uh, oh, the Lost Causes uh, slide here, since we've, since we've been talking about that a bit. Yeah, we've been dancing around it. Um, you know, just, I, 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 I think I started to view the film more as, so when I first saw Pan's Labyrinth, and I've seen this film several times over the years, um, I, I thought the, I thought 
very clearly about the fantasy world, that the underground realm, and I thought that was real. And I thought that this the story this was a story about a princess, Princess Moana, finding her place in this realm, and you know, even though the little girl dies, Ophelia dies in the real world, like she becomes princess and great. Like I think as I thought more about the context of the Spanish Spanish Civil War, like I said. They, the, the happy ending didn't seem to work for me. And I started to see the film more as a lost cause and about lost causes. And I, I was very surprised to see Del Toro being so explicit about that in some of his comments. Um, but what I, what I, you know, like he, he basically says that the girls don't win, um, you know, spoiler alert. But what I, what I found really interesting, this quote on the right, I really like the tyrant's rule ends with death. The murder's rule begins with it. Um, you know, just, it's, a, it's, a start, it's not just about a lost, lost cause being a hopeless cause, but in a way he's saying that um, the, the lost, the, what we think of as the lost cause isn't, isn't something that isn't a failure. It may, it might, it just maybe, maybe the maybe the time horizons are too short. You know, fighting the lost cause is still worthwhile because being being a, being a murderer means you have a a positive legacy, even if that legacy isn't fully realized within your lifetime or within you know the years after your lifetime. Whereas tyrant, like they get to live, they get to do their thing, they have their palaces, and they can you know they they have the material needs, but when they die, people spit on their graves or, mm-hmm. you know, they're, like their, their, their legacy is like, you know, and you know, people like Franco and Hitler had, have legacies of being pretty widely condemned. Not that there aren't obviously individuals that sympathize with them, but uh, like even, even just, just this past, I think last week, there was um, a news article about how the the current uh, Spanish government is has been toying around with a proposal to base to dig up Franco's body and move him to another gravesite because he's currently buried uh, kind of uh, in an area for like honored uh, soldiers or veterans or heroes and um, the government saying well that's not what Franco deserves so like even in death 40 50 years later. Um, there are calls to, to, you know, dishonor his legacy, basically, because, you know, he was a dictator. So I just, I, I kind of thought the way Del Toro put it really, you know, put an interesting spin on what it means to actually be a lost cause. Hmm. Right, which I guess getting back to the tension between the realism and the fairy tale I don't want to say that it doesn't matter if it's real or not, but on a certain level, I, I don't know that it matters to the message. Like, it, it, it matters to the plot, but I think kind of the message is the same, that there's a, there's a, a happy ending for Ophelia, metaphorically or spiritually, if not physically, you know? And, and I don't want to diminish her physical suffering and say it doesn't matter if she dies because that gets us into some murky territory. But at least in terms of, I mean, that's why people get, you know, 
frustrated at the last battle is is he kills off all the kids like you know what do their lives matter they're going to heaven so that's not necessarily exactly what i mean but but i think there is something there to even if it's even if the fantasy is is purely imaginary or purely metaphorical her triumph is um real like in a in a real sense her you know her fulfilling of her destiny of of making the right choice the self-sacrificial choice and ensuring like you're saying her legacy in that um which is why i threw in some aslan stuff because i think again whether or not she literally comes back to life there is um there's quasi religious even his use of the word martyr here is sort of quasi religious you know i del toro i think would um resist you know calling this you know maybe an explicitly christian film but it's not inconsistent with a lot of these themes of self-sacrifice and triumph in self-sacrifice and and a spiritual life after death that you know means something tangible mm -hmm. ashley i know you wanted to talk about that like his his yeah. kind of I, I think it's it's related to this like his ambiguity his resistance to his discomfort with some of um the the christian language of the kind of Anglo-American fantasy tradition. Um, but on the other hand, I think some of what Dom is saying is consistent with that, of this idea of there, there can be victory even in death. There can be a victory that matters more than whether or not you die. Um, I don't think that's inconsistent mm -hmm. with a lot of those kinds of stories. Yeah. Yeah, it's written in um, other parts of Guillermo del Toro's work. Um, he really, um, is, especially like with, with Pan's Labyrinth, you, you have this clear self-sacrifice, like, no, I'm not going to allow uh, my, my brother to come to harm. Um, and then, you know, in the end, um, Ophelia um, is seated by her father's side. I mean, that, that very clearly, I mean, that's Jesus to me. Um, I, there, there's so, so many little different, like nuanced things. And, and uh, it's, it's not like a direct allegory. It's not like, you know, you read the Chronicles of Narnia and Aslan is very clearly Jesus. Um, but there, there's definitely things that resonate with me personally as a Christian watching Pan's Labyrinth, um, her self-sacrifice, the, um, I, I think that the Torah that you have to back, yeah, Pan's rule, uh, ends with his death, uh, a martyr's rule begins. Um, and I, I, I think that's such a, that's a very Christian idea. Um, you know, Jesus is triumphant in death, um, in resurrection, not, um, you know, not the other way around. Um, so I, I just, just, there's so many different things. And again, I'm, I'm thinking again about The Shape of Water because I really love The Shape of Water. 
Um, but there were there are a lot of things in that film that really resonated with me on that level too. So just a lot, a lot of different things. Also like the, the very idea of a labyrinth and I, I don't come from a um, liturgical tradition that um, employed labyrinths um, in worship, but I know they, they're used for, for prayer uh, and prayer walking and things like yeah. that. Um, and so it just, again, there's just this whole, like there's little tiny things. Um, and, it, and I guess uh, you were talking earlier about um, what's intertextual about about this. To me, that 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 is drawing from like Christian ideas, whether, you know, Del Toro would, um, I, I, if I if I'm remembering correctly, I, I've read that he per personally describes himself somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, agnosticism. So I, I just think it's very interesting that he still draws from those ideas while not necessarily, um, they're not necessarily his own uh, beliefs. Right. right. Sure. And, and, and lapsed Catholicism and, and any Catholic will tell you that once a Catholic mm -hmm. to a certain extent, always, you know, like that's, it's such a ingrained um, way of thinking. I mean, I say mm -hmm. this with a parent who's no longer Catholic. Um, and I think Del Toro will admit to that, that a lot of the themes and the imagery um, is drawn from that, even if he's no longer considers himself a, a practicing believer. Mm -hmm. And well, and I think even um, just uh, storytellers in general, I mean, even Joss Whedon, who's like straight up atheist, you know, has a lot of, you know, religious imagery and, and mm -hmm. stuff in his, uh, you know, especially about the angel. Uh, some of his other works as well, um, mm -hmm. which, so speaking of lost causes, of course, was reminding me a lot of um, Kat and I, uh, our discussions on the show Angel, because I think throughout that series, uh, more so than Buffy, uh, I think really gets to that idea. And so uh, it was just sort of reminding me, and, and, and the one quote that sort of came up, um, in my mind was uh, from season four there of uh, Angel talking to, uh, spoiler alert, he has a son, his son Connor, um, talking about like the importance of being a champion even when like there's no hope or, or it's a lost cause or whatever. He, he says, uh, it doesn't matter where we come from, what we've done, what we suffered, or even if we made a difference, we live as the, <clears throat> the world where as it should be to show it what it can be. Um, and I, I feel like there's an aspect of that here of you're not, you're not necessarily, uh, you know, these soldiers, whether or not they're successful, or even if they believe that they're going to be successful, they're not fighting necessarily, you know, to succeed they're they're fighting you know for that principle of like this is what could happen if if everyone you know if we do win like this is what what could be but it's not necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean they even believe that they will win or or that the odds aren't stacked against them um well and to get back to the the rose as you said, if nobody tries for the rose, then you're guaranteed that nobody's going to attain the rose. That's right. the surest way to defeat is to give up entirely and not try. Yeah. And this is um, where I do wonder if the, 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 the you know, so Kat, I know you were saying, asking if it matters if the, um, the fantasy realm is real or literal. And I think this is maybe where could matter and that if, if if we treat this under this underground realm the fantasy 
elements in the story as strictly real or or more especially in the ending if we if we believe that Ophelia actually does not die and goes this and becomes this underground this Moana that means there's a certain utilitarianism to the struggle that I think is mm -hmm. somewhat different from the types of lost causes we've been struggling uh, talking about where you know lost cause we're saying like a, like with with the uh, Curtis example of Angel, it's it's the the you do it because it is the right thing to do, um, you know, not because there's a chance that you will get the reward at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, and lost causes are worth fighting because they show you because they show that it is possible to fight for them, not that you are likely or even even remotely possibly will get to that you know, that outcome that you want to achieve. So there right. I think it's I, I, I guess I'm I'm I lean more towards, you know, Ophelia did not actually become the princess and she died. Um and sure. it's sort of a tragedy. But I think that is where the final task becomes crucial that she the the trickery, you know, of the fawn mm -hmm. is essential. That um she gives it up, you know, so she does the right thing, believing that it's going to lead to not getting the reward, you know, so there's, he almost has his cake and eats it too. Like if you, if you kind of believe that she is rewarded in the end, well, you can't just say she did it all for the reward because she didn't, she explicitly chooses to sacrifice the reward on, you know, for the, for the baby. So you know, there's that nice kind of, she, she's kind of good either way. Um, you know, she's yeah. able to relinquish it and, and still get it because the fawn was, you know, a trickster all along. And, you know, he had that other card of his sleeve. Well, and that um, sort of twist at the end, I, I want to touch on that in order to segue into the topic that Kat said she wanted to talk about uh, on Twitter um, around obedience. Because, my question here, uh, again, second time through, because I didn't realize anything the first time through, um, and that's on me, not the film. Uh, but but the idea of uh, so so uh, I didn't know that the king had a name, but but Ray is what was on uh, IMDb, so <laughs> um, which is, seems appropriate for a king, uh, especially a Spanish king. Um, but uh, uh, the, 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 the sentence he says here of, of you have spilled your own blood rather than the blood of an innocent, which is an interesting statement. So that's implying that Ophelia is not an innocent, right? Because, or is she? Like, like it, it, so I guess my question here is, is do, it, does her blood actually fulfill the blood of an innocent mandate, mandate right. or or is the implication here that mm. she's not innocent and and if so then what makes her not innocent and my answer to that would be well one i think it's ambiguous i think you could read it both ways but but my real answer to that and and the way that i sort of read it is that that she's not innocent because of her disobedience that that it's actually her disobedience that makes her not innocent but maybe the the like that's that's the thing you know the defiance of spilling innocent blood 
doesn't make her innocent, but it, it it's like choosing the right form of uh, resistance or disobedience or whatever. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase it, but um, that's kind of the way that I, I like to look at it. Um, but I know you wanted to talk specifically around disobedience in the film as a whole. And I missed the slide. Where was that? Oh, this one. Uh, you, you promised to obey me. Um, there's a lot of people not doing obeying uh, in this film. Um, right. And I don't right. I don't know if you had a particular place you want to start with that. Yeah. But I just thought that that was a as we were talking about kind of where Ophelia ends up and and whether or not, you know, she yeah. goes there and, and the idea that she might not be innocent. Um, yeah. You know, no, I, secret I, life I, as a gang member. <laughs> Maybe there's that. Um, that's in a secret chapter of the novelization. It's Ophelia's other life. Um, mm. <laughs> no, I, I mean... Oh, but she also... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I mean she kidnaps her brother, like she, you know, right. Um, disobeys Erica, and and runs out. And, Erica's uh, also pointing out um, her disobedience with with the fairies. She eats the the fruit when she's told not to. Sure. As well, um, and gets uh, some fairy heads bit off. Um, so right. Yeah. So so she's certainly not perfect. You know, like whether or not like we can, I guess quibble over to what extent that, you know, makes her no longer innocent. But I think all that is, seems to be true. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to make sure we mentioned this. I think we've kind of talked around it a lot, but um, this theme of, of obedience being the key to the heroes, that they don't just do what they're told, um, which on the, on the face of it, I think, despite all this kind of quasi you know, resurrection and religious imagery might be the thing that is most um, blatantly kind of setting itself in a, I don't know, opposition to Christian tradition, this notion that you should be obedient um, and, uh, you know, or this idea that you should not listen to authority, but follow your own conscience. And that might be somewhat controversial. Um, but, um, you know, and in we in this movie we do have the church kind of aligned with the nationalists, and you know the the priest is in with the feast and um, in the pocket of the doll. Whereas they they whether or not it's true, they're branding the rebels as these kind of the atheist reds, you know, who are you know these communists that don't believe in anything. That's the ideological opposition, at least from a propaganda point of view. Um, but, but I don't know, when you go deeper, I don't know that it is oppositional to these Christian ideas either. That, that I think the doctor's point about, it's not just that you're disobedient, it's, it's disobedience to what? Obedience for its own sake. Who are you being obedient to is actually quite important. So I think at the end of the day, it's not that obedience is necessarily good or bad. The question is, what are you obeying? Um, and Ophelia deciding not to murder her brother um, is clearly the the righteous choice in the end. Um, and I think, yeah, like again, whether or not we agree that the ending is literal, I think the you have to read that oh, that disobedience into it. Um, her her giving up of the kingdom 
for the sake of doing the right thing, again, is that's back to the lost causes theme of she's willing to give up her eternal reward um, if, if, you know, in the service of this greater ideology, um, which kind of, again, puts her in line with, with the rebels. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think I think given the parallels between the story in the mundane world and the story in the fantasy world, though, um, yeah, I think one of the things that, um, you know, I think one of the things that like really, you know, it, they're both setting up the disobedient actor as being on the righteous side, you know, that's Ophelia, and then the, the Republicans in the mundane world. Um, and you know, what's interesting though is that the you know kind of starting to think through the parallel though in the mundane world you know in Spain in 1944 the individuals that are being disobeyed are clearly villains right like Vidal is the uh, local commander Dr. Ferrero Ferrero is uh, disobeying him. And I think we kind of have that like good bad dichotomy pretty clear. Ophelia is disobeying the fawn, and as we mm -hmm. said earlier, he is a more ambiguous character. Like, like she's not disobeying the pale man, right? Like that's not that's not the the individual who's being disobeyed. Uh, and Ophelia also disobeys her mother, which is you know interesting too. So. Um, you know, I, I kind of wonder if, I don't, like, I think, I definitely agree. This film is on the side of disobeying, especially disobeying bad authority figures. But I also wonder if part of the story is Ophelia, like, learning how to, like, becoming less of, like, a child who will just do things, like, disobey, like, just being less of a child who, like, will, children will sometimes disobey for bad reasons mm -hmm. and, or just like say they don't want to eat their, their vegetables when they should and being somebody who will disobey and take a moral stand because mm -hmm. that's what she does it's, like, I guess it's, it's more of a it's more about like why she disobeys rather than like the fact that she disobeys right 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 which is kind of I, I think what I was trying to say earlier is like the 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 reason, the motivation, and the purpose—the you know—the authority that you are disobeying makes all the difference. Um, and I guess can we bring in the pale man here because we definitely have to talk about the pale man, um, one of the scariest <laughs> things I think I can remember seeing in a movie. Um, and yeah, I guess if Erica is right when she points out like disobedience of the fawn with um, eating the fruit of the table is kind of another one of her transgressions. Um, it's more what you're saying, Dom, about it, it's for no good reason, which is one of the most infuriating things about it is it's that classic horror movie thing of like, why are you doing that? You're screaming at her, turn around. Like, can't you see that this is, which is well, frustrating, but. hungry and. I didn't really she is make hungry. She went to bed without her supper. <laughs> yeah, not only that, like, she went to bed. Not only did she go to bed without her supper, but like they are rationing food, um, right. and 
So like, yeah, you know, I guess you know, she's a kid. I kind of like I sympathize with that. It's not like no, it's not and like she did something stupid. Like, don't touch the the magic lantern or something like that. Like, yeah, right. kid was hungry. I. I, I agree. So I, I wouldn't say that there's no reason, but it's not, I, I, it's a, it's a gradient. It's more about her impulse control. It's more about, yeah, she has her reasons, but if she could kind of, I don't know, if she had really thought this through, the risk was not worth it. Um, you, she very nearly does not get out of the tunnel. Um, whereas I think it's, so it, it's a progression from, this kind of disobedience, which, okay, maybe you can rationalize it away, but ultimately was a mistake through to the disobedience at the end, which is more of a moral, she takes a moral stand on something. I think it's really interesting, the images you've chosen to uh, juxtapose here. I It never crossed my mind to compare Vidal with the pale man. Um, Something that did cross my mind thinking about the Pale Man as um, the uh, fourth horseman of the apocalypse, you know, the, the, the rider on a pale horse is, is death. Um, and when we look at the uh, the paintings on the wall in the Pale Man's um, house, for lack of better terminology, like it, it, it's him like eating children, um, you know, very, very deadly. Um, and then the thing that I remembered the most about this this movie was was thinking about how violent the doll was and like the the heinous ways he would kill people um i remember thinking about that all i mean almost as much as thinking about how scary the pale man was um or how creepy the fawn was uh, it, to me like he was the worst part mm -hmm. um and uh, I never once thought to um, juxtapose these two in Vidal at his feast and Pale Man for his feast. It's very interesting. Right. And you get Vidal and um, his lieutenants and, um, and the priest discussing cutting rations as they have this splendid, long dining table full of food. Um, so the perversion of the pale man and, and Vidal are kind of, there's a lot of that. I don't know how much we'll have time to get into it, but there are, the more I watch it, the more, um, especially visual rhymes you see between the fantasy and the realistic sides of things, that there are knives that are important and there are keys that are important. And there's all these things, these little images and motifs that kind of repeat themselves in the fantasy world and the realistic world in this movie. Uh, Corita is saying that she would risk the pale man's ire for uh, brownies or cheese, and then she adds pie, and then realizes she's really hungry, so. Um, yeah, so the, the one thing that sort of I questioned with uh, Ophelia's disobedience of, of the Fawn's instructions not to eat anything, uh, on the pale man's table is like not eating fairy food is a is a pretty common trope and if she reads as many fairy tales as she as is implied it like it, it would seem to me that she would be better versed in sort of the the circumstances there um which may just maybe that just 
speaks to how hungry she actually is. Um, you know, not not saying that rational thinking people who are yet very hungry wouldn't, you know, maybe still risk that uh, eating that. But it that did seem a little odd to me that like she would just be like, oh, let me stop and grab some grapes, you know, on my way back uh, to to my other world here. Mm. Um, well, it's this whole the like the whole Dr. Ferraro's quote is to obey without questioning and which is different from obeying um because you could obey after having a question answered mm -hmm. um and it it, it it i think like curtis you like fair point like she 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 should have been literate enough to like no don't eat the pale man's food but at the same time um i wonder if this is also maybe a lesson in like the questioning part too like why do you not eat the pale man's food? Maybe if you'd mm -hmm. asked the fawn, the fawn would have said, "Well, you know, the pale man might might wake up and eat you." Like <laughs> that, there will that, that there that this is not just some random rule. This is a rule for your safety. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, she does do that with the baby. She's you know, when, when, at the end, she asks, "Why are we doing this?" Like, you know, is there an alternative? And then she does take a stand eventually. So, yeah, I, I guess I don't I don't. I don't necessarily think the pale man incident is a lesson in, you know, obeying without questioning. It's just maybe a different type of obedience or mm -hmm. a different type of this, you know, question, the questioning part is key. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we have a few minutes left. Um, any, any like final thoughts or any other, I know we didn't cover all the slides. Uh, Kat, you kind of brought up before that, um, I mean, we've been talking about the ambiguity all along, but uh, kind of in, in Del Toro's own words, that there's a sort of uh, how you interpret it says more about you uh, rather than the film or, or the maker of the film, um, perhaps. Uh, I don't know if, if we want to use that to just kind of give some final thoughts or ideas. Um, I'll just read one one thing here that Erica shared in terms of uh, the ending. She says she, she leans towards um, the, the ending sort of being Ophelia's imagination um, based on Vidal not being able to see the fawn, uh, only Ophelia does, and, and then the you know queen uh, being played by the same actress as uh, the non-fairyland mother. Um, so I, you know, the I king, don't. The King Ray is supposed to be her real light, her non-fairy father as well. Sure. Right. And we right. don't. That's the implication. Right. We don't obviously meet the father in in the real life, but yeah, um, that was the implication. Yeah. For sure. I mean, and those are points, but I also think there are as many points in favor of the reality of the world as well. You know, you get. Um, her escaping her room you know you don't see her escape but but you're led to believe that she makes a door and um gets out to steal the baby um there's the whole mandrake root you know the fact that um they at least have something under the bed whether or not you believe it's an actual living mandrake um so i yeah i can see arguments both ways um, 
I think personally, I lean more towards, I'm, I'm kind of more with Del Toro here of, we have enough um, thematic evidence to go on to, to kind of, for me, say that there is a reality to the fairy world. But again, even if I'm wrong, I don't know how much I care. So <laughs> it's like the, the message in the end, I think rings loud and true. Um, and I, you know, I'll plant my flag with the reality of her resurrection, but um, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong in the kind of plot sense in, in this specific case. Curtis or Ashley, do you wanna decide? Do you wanna tip the scales one way or the other? <laughs> um, yeah, so on the theme of disobedience too, we actually didn't talk about this in the opening frame of the fact that she runs away from her kingly parents in the underground realm. I mean, she, you know, the whole, her whole story is is uh, if if we're looking at this as Moana, you know, leaving the underground world and and being later resurrected or or returned as Ophelia, uh, that in and of itself is an act of disobedience. Um, Good point. Very much a sort of grass is greener on the other side type of thing. It has a sort of feel to it. Um, you know, I like the ambiguity. I don't. I don't know that I want to commit because, well, I, I guess like I don't. I don't necessarily think you have to commit. Like, I think she can both die, and it's also a return to uh, the underworld, um, sort of with her last dying breath. I mean, there's there's lots of fairy tales that you know, where, where fairyland is ambiguous, whether or not it's a death or a crossing mm -hmm. over of living beings. Um, I'm thinking even of like Sir Orfeo or something mm -hmm. where it's like, these people were snatched from life. Well, does that mean they're still alive or, or you know, you know, the Elf King's sort of court there of like all these sort of like people who are kind of statuesque or, or whatever. It's like, well, they're, they're kind of still alive, but like in, in the non-fairy world, they're, they, they're pretty much dead or, or just missing or whatever. Um, I think that's a fine fairy tradition. I also mm -hmm. think that like other people not being able to see the fawn doesn't negate the fawn's reality or existence. Like, again, we're talking about fairy creatures here. Um, you know, a lot of people might see a stick bug, but not see the, you know, flying fairy that it turns into and, and that kind of thing. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that proves one thing over another. Um, so I'm going to leave it at, I think you can have your cake and eat it too, or your pie and cheese and brownies, Karita. Um, your fairy food and eat it too. <laughs> I... I tend to land on um, that, yes, the, the, the fairy realm is real um, because I like fantasy and that's where I, that's where I, I land. But the, uh, uh, the line from uh, Dumbledore in uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows um, kind of, I think, resonates with this, this ending is, um, of course, it's in your head, but that doesn't mean it isn't real. Sure. Uh, 
There's Dumbledore yeah, saying yeah. exactly what I've been trying to say, right? Yeah, yeah. As as you were discussing, like, oh, that's Dumbledore. Yeah. That that tends to be where I land on that. And on the flip side, I think even if the fairy world is real, I don't think that necessarily takes away from the tragic aspect of the ending either. Right. Um, right. I don't think that that mitigates the fact that a child you know, is murdered in this movie and, and, right. you know, her life is cut short. So again, yeah, right. I mean, I think the ambiguity is really um, central to this movie. And obviously if it was entirely unambiguous, it wouldn't be this film. Um, that's not really the point here. I think to you, hearkening back to that, um, uh, a martyr's reign begins at his death. Um, I mean, Yes, we admire martyrs, but we don't, we're not glad they died. Um, and I, I think Ophelia's story is, is, is that as well. Like we admire her courage and we admire her um, self-sacrifice, but it would have been really great if she hadn't gotten shot by Vidal because he's terrible. Right, and, but this does um, bring up an, a bit of an uncomfortable question about martyrs and we probably don't have time to really get into this, but um, I think many of us can think of martyrs throughout history who have a more powerful legacy because they were martyred. Um, sure. John F. Kennedy, you know, a lot of good things about him, a lot of bad things about him. He probably, you know, he was in his life, he was a president who got a few things accomplished, but he was not this lionized figure, you know, the, the candle in the wind and all the, you know, he, like, JFK is what he is because his presidency was cut short because mm -hmm. of the assassination. And that, that matters. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's not, that's not to say that anybody oh, celebrates. it's not good. No, no, it's not. Right. Yeah, we're not it, celebrating it, assassination. And that's the tension. That's the, like, you can't have, you, if you try <laughs> to have this conversation, you end up going, but, and then the other side goes, well, but it, like, there's no yeah. way to separate the good and the bad in the, no, in the do not do not kill people to make martyrs like that without right. like do not do that but like, at the same I time, think that's a good point to end on um do not celebrate <laughs> killing people um <laughs> no yeah I uh we are kind of at time but uh no I think I think there's a lot of ambiguity there um but we will be back uh, on November 21st, uh, which is the week before Thanksgiving, uh, for anyone who's counting, uh, American Thanksgiving, of course. Um, and uh, we'll be back with to talk about the fifth element. Um, thank you all for attending tonight, and uh, don't martyr anyone, please. Uh, and if you do, don't tell them where you got the idea. Uh, okay, talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Good night. Thank you. Good night.